Get in the Cash Flow Game with K&K. &K. Today we had a really cool guest actually. Uh, her name is Jennifer Grimson. She has a pretty wild and uh, amazing story now. I think she went through a lot of struggles to get to where she's at, but honestly her story like gives me goosebumps uh, as a woman. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, and, and unfortunately, uh she's not the only woman that has this story, but it's unfortunate because, uh, you know, she basically had a couple bad relationships and I think, I can't remember, I'm trying to think, like I know at least one caused her to be in her, live in her car and basically she- Kind of lost everything, she was yep. a single mom. Relying um, on men, doing that whole thing and then she woke up like, what am I doing? Don't do this anymore and- um, She's a real estate investor now. Yep. And she lives in um, Tennessee. We're talking about vacation rentals there. They call it, um, what does she call it? Nash Vegas or? Yeah, Nash Vegas. A lot of people call it that. Na no, Las Vegas. Nash, Nash Vegas. Vegas. Yeah. So I guess Vegas or Nashville is crazy. It's fun. Um, the vacation rental market, if you guys don't know, if you're listening to this, is out of control there. They literally built like towers, right? Where the VRBO, it's booming there. I, I haven't been there in so long, but. The one thing that's fascinating about her is um, the ability to recover, the ability to change her life, and then not rely on another man. But but also too is now she's realized I need to empower other women, which was the cool thing about it. So we talked about that. But I don't know. It was a very very cool story. Um, everybody needs to hear it because they might know somebody that's struggling or a woman that needs to go through it. I'm you know Crystal knows I'm a big component component or proponent. proponent. My gosh, I can't even talk of empowering women uh, most of my team is made up of women and i think that a woman should be more in control and you know we've talked about that recently on a podcast how um a lady was saying her husband gave her like the power and you know her kind of power back to be a partner in a relationship yeah absolutely i i really loved everything that she had to say because i'm also a big proponent of women being part of their financial future and uh, at least at the very minimum understanding their finances and just I think it creates a, a different level of confidence as a female when uh, you do have knowledge of your financial uh, future and what you're doing and you have a say and you understand what's going on and I also think that as women we bring a very interesting dynamic to like something that can just be very business. Uh, there is an emotional aspect to it. I think women bring that and I think that we have a very good gut feeling. I think we just bring a different dynamic to any sort of a business situation that is, I think, beneficial to everyone involved. So uh, she definitely feels that way. She has a very inspiring story. She's overcome a lot to get where she is today and she continues to build. She continues to pivot when needed. Uh, like, for example, she talked about how she had to pivot when the vacation rental markets turned on her at times. She's had to make some pretty big, bold moves, and she's had been in some risky situations. And so I just really admire her for everything that she's done. And I think uh, whether you're a man or a woman, uh, that you could really benefit from a lot of the things that she had to say. And her story is, is really uh, very inspiring. So I loved I loved uh, hearing her background and, and the things that she's overcome to get here. So, But... One more important thing before we jump in to the podcast, Crystal, what do we need them to do? We need you to like, check, subscribe, check, give us a five star review, share, hello, tell all your friends and you your have family. family members, friends, women struggling, you know, this tell these, strangers. These, I don't even yeah. care. Just yeah. tell everyone. Yeah. Tell know, everyone about the podcast. 
Uh, like, share, tell everybody you know, allow us to keep doing what we love to do, which is bringing you uh, valuable information and sharing other people's inspiring stories about how real estate has changed their life. Let's jump into it. Gen Jennifer, thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. This is great. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I know we were just talking a little bit before uh, we started recording, and you mentioned that you're in Nashville or Nash Vegas. <laughs> um, so can you kind of just give us a little bit of background? You have like a really amazing story, just where you came from and how you got here. Can you just run us through that quickly? Yeah. Um, amazing story. That's uh, that's an adjective uh, you could use to describe my story. Uh, there's a lot of other adjectives I could think of as well, but in, encapsulated, I lost everything twice. I had no job, no car, no place to live, two kids to raise. Um and I did that twice. I was in chapter 13 bankruptcy twice. Uh, and the second time it happened to me, uh, not that I was completely passive because I take full responsibility for what got me there. Um, but the second time it happened, I realized I had to rebuild in a way that nobody could ever do that to me again. Or there was never gonna be a circumstance where that was gonna happen to me again. And I knew how to get a job. I knew how to get a corporate job. I knew how to make good money but I didn't know how to build wealth. And so I started down the path just as a complete novice of a person with a job, a person rebuilding, a single mom, and trying to figure out a way to create wealth in any way that I could. And what I discovered is that there were a lot of tools available that I didn't know about. And I think I'm pretty smart. And uh, I was pretty angry about that. And I started putting those tools into place things that most people have access to and was able to, once I rebuilt my credit, I bought my first house. After that, it was um, within four years, I created $1.4 million of income producing investments. And I did that with a W-2 and some grit through house hacking and through short-term rental, Airbnb. Wow. That's amazing. I think that's like, you know, for me, just, you know, we have kids too. I think one of the most terrifying things is okay, you can lose everything on your own, but now when you've got kids to take care of, um, that that's really scary. Uh, so what were some of the things that kind of uh, helped you to learn how to build wealth on your own? And what do you attribute to giving you the, the courage really to do it? Well, there's nothing like necessity to give you a, a set of cojones you might not have known that you had. So uh, that worked. Um, I had to do it. I didn't have a choice. Um, the tools really, the, one of the many, many game changers along the way, but one of them was just joining a real estate investors group here in Nashville. And Nashville culturally is a uh, very welcoming city. Uh, people culturally are very easy to get to know. It's very easy to make connections in this town. That's not necessarily true in a lot of places. I lived in California for 12 years. I live in the East Coast. I live in Seattle. Um, all are great places, but I had an advantage culturally in that sense. But I joined a real estate investors group and that was really the first. And I remember walking in there surrounded by hundreds of people who were speaking a language I had never heard, you know, What's your debt to income? Are you a buy and hold? Do you flip houses? Are you, I was like, I don't, what is that? I don't know what any, what, do you do hard money lending? All of these words I had never heard of before, but I knew um, 
I kind of, when now when I talk to people about it, I talk, I talk about getting in the right pool. I knew I was in the right pool and I was surrounded by Olympic swimmers and I had my swimmies on, my little floaties. Um, but I knew if I just stayed there and paddling that two things would happen. Number one, I'd get better. And number two, they wouldn't let me drown. And both of those things were true. So that was the beginning. That was learning tools like, hey, you could borrow from your 401k or I didn't even know that I could move into a house for 3% down because I had had such terrible credit. So once I realized those things and then combined with one night in an art studio, I, I paint as well. Um, someone said to me, hey, have you heard of Airbnb? And I was like, I still have the card where I wrote it down, Airbnb. And I went home and I looked it up and I, and I did the math. And I realized if I rented my house six nights a month, it would cover the mortgage. So I did it. I kicked my roommate. Yeah. I had a roommate at the time who was helping me pay the rent, pay my mortgage rather. And she was a dear friend and I kicked her out. (laughs) And we're still friends to this day, but I was like, you got to go. Here's the math. Bye. And, um, converted the house. And literally as soon as I put it on Airbnb, I was booked every weekend for three months. And I, First of all, I had to find a place to stay. Um, so that began a series of staying with my mom and friends and other people. Uh, but I realized I was really on to something and that I had to find a way to, to sort of, you know, grab the tail of that dragon and figure out a way to have it help me build what I wanted to build, which was really just security. That's really all I wanted at the time. Well, it sounds like, I mean, I think for all of us, your goals kind of change, right? Like at first you're like, I just need to survive. I need to pay my bills. I need a roof over my head. And then you're like, okay, well, I got that down. And now my next goal is this. How has that kind of evolution happened since you first Airbnb'd your house on the weekends? Um, Well, in a lot of ways. So realizing very quickly that um, I kind of made myself homeless uh, which was the last thing I wanted after having lost everything twice and literally had been uh, homeless. I was like, all right, I need to sort of get my hands around this. So I did, I did kind of exactly what you were doing. What's my exact goal? My exact goal at that time was, can I, can I pay my mortgage? And if I can't pay my mortgage, what am I doing with all of that extra money? Can I, can I get more property? Um, and I started to, um, I didn't realize I was on this path. I didn't realize this is what was going to happen, but I needed, this had become a cash cow, this house, and I needed a place to live. So I had friends who were renting apartments and, and Airbnb in their houses. And I was like, I don't understand why I would pay rent. So I went and found another house and bought it. But the way I bought it was I borrowed against a 401k that I had from my employer. I didn't cash it out, which people think that they, that that's what I mean. I mean, I borrowed and there's yeah, no yeah. penalty and no tax consequence and people don't understand that. And I didn't have a lot in my 401k at the time. I was only allowed to borrow $22,000, but guess what? That was enough for me to put three to 5% down. And I moved into a piece of property with my air mattress and my dog and furnished it, got it up and running. And six months later, had it on Airbnb paid back my $22,000, borrowed it again, bought another house, moved in with my dog and my air mattress, paid it back, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. So 
that's when I realized, wow, I'm really on to something. Now, all along, I was telling my investor friends about it and they were like, that's not right. Those numbers aren't right. You can't be telling the truth. I'm like, okay, I don't know why you think I'm lying, but I'm telling you, Airbnb is something. And uh, people would say to me, how can you let people stay in your house? And I'm like, because uh, I don't pay a mortgage and I have another income. That's how I can do it. So it became very lucrative very quickly. And that was exciting. However, then the city got involved and the regulations of the city for me um, was a three-year battle just to keep my licenses. And in all of their, not just me, but everybody, in all of their efforts to kind of squash this, what they thought was this, you know, the evil um, investor coming into their neighborhoods, what they did was they created rules that did make it very hard for someone like me who owned single family homes to do this. Number one, they would not allow you to put your house in an LLC. So it was completely um, wide open for liability. But the other rules they put in place was to make it okay to do that on commercial property. So this massive influx of investors from all over came here. Buildings were just built overnight for just Airbnb because it's now a huge destination. So for me in 2019, I saw my numbers starting going down. And I'm not a person who clings to something and go, well, it'll go back, it'll go back. I'm like, if you're not paying the rent, you're out. So 2020, February, 2020, I sold all the properties 30 days before COVID hit. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember it was terrifying. And, you know, there's an argument that you, that had I hung on, I could be in a different place now, but this is something I talk about all the time. Understanding your own money culture is really important. My money culture was based in fear, based on all the things that I'd been through. So I could not have survived six months carrying a $7,000 a month load to carry these houses, even though that may not even sound like much, you know, $7,000 a month over six, eight, 10 months with no income would have put me um, into a very scary place mentally. And my husband would probably be buried in the backyard because he just, he'd probably, you know, he'd be, he wouldn't be able to live with me because it would be so awful. So that was my decision there. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. I wanted to go back. Um, I really, your, your story is pretty crazy. So I want to go back to like, cause I'm more fascinated by like, you know, I think going through this pandemic and stuff, I mean, as you know, I think there's a lot of challenges going on here. A lot of people sold stuff, freaked out. And they're like, I should have held on. But also I think what's going on is a lot of people too are in this, like they're calling it the great resignation. They're like quitting the job or I don't know if you heard this term, but it's kind of like flying around. So a lot of people we know there's having problems, people and getting employees and stuff. But I, mean, I think a lot of people too, they got let go and they're just sitting there like down and out. I lost my job. I'm stuck. I haven't paid rent. I'm behind or my house. And I, that's why for you is I'm more fascinated. Like you did twice. You went through this whole episode. Sometimes one people get it the first time. They're like, never again. You did it twice. How do you like, where do you go from like, I'm here to like, I gotta, I gotta turn it on and get out of this. Like what, what was it for you? Uh, you mean rebuilding? No, just like mentally. Like I think so many people can't rebuild cause they're just get stuck. 
And for you, I always say it is, it has to be a mindset thing. It has to be. Has to be. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's absolutely true. I realized the second time I lost everything. So um, the way I lost everything was relational. So I don't have uh, spending habits I, that are bad. I don't make bad investments. I turned my financial well-being over to someone else. I was, I had been married in California and I got a divorce and my ex-husband sued me 25 times in 10 years and drove me into bankruptcy. So I had $500,000 in attorney's fees. And I share that story because it happens a lot. My example is very extreme. And I understand that that's not what happens to most people. Um, I had to keep going for the kids. That's all I could do. The second time around, what I had done was kind of frying pan into the fryer. I had been in a relationship with someone who was very well off, but very much wanted me to just kind of lay low and not do anything. And I took that opportunity and I did. But when that relationship ended, I was driving a car that didn't have my name on it. I was living in a house that didn't have my name on it. I was livid with myself. So to your point, I absolutely, given the opportunity, would have preferred to have curled up into a ball and just disappeared. But I didn't really have that option. And I knew that if I could just find a path, you know, you take a look around and this isn't, this isn't a diss on anybody, but there are a whole lot of people who are a whole lot more successful than me that probably haven't had the opportunities I've had, haven't had the education that I've had. And, and I do have the tools. I just had to find them. And I found it really fun. So I was motivated very much by money for sure, um, but I didn't know it was really about wealth. I just really wanted security. Um, and that kept me going. And then learning, finding your tribe too, finding other real estate people as well, especially I would say, who are constantly saying, hey, have you heard about this? Have you heard about that? Have you heard about all these different ways, all these different opportunities? Um, and that really helped me to, to keep going. It, it excites me actually. And it excites me to be able to share the story with other people and to show them that there is a path out um, especially if it's, you know, purely financial. I mean, honestly, in the scheme of things, if it's purely financial, you can probably solve that problem. Even if it just means getting three jobs, you can solve that problem. It's other problems you can't really solve. Yeah, that's cool. And then was it, um, obviously the real estate, the light bulb, the things, was it a book? Was it a person? A lot of times it's like, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and oh my God, it literally, somebody just, their life went that way and it was never looked back. What was it for you that was like a pivotal moment where you're like, this is it. This is what I've been, this has been inside me. I didn't know what it was, but this is it. This is it. Right. Um, I did read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. That wasn't first. So that, was, <laughs> that was after. And I think everybody needs to read it. It's like you know, yeah. a little tiny book that we all need to read. I probably didn't read that until I was well into six months of the uh, investors group. I really think it was going to the investors group. Go, I, I knew real estate was a good idea. I knew that there was always something to be done there. But I assumed, I think like most people do, that you had to have a lot of money to do it. Um, you know, that you, you know, had to run an apartment building or you had to get a duplex or start, you know, whatever you had to do. Um, so I hadn't taken the time to really look into it. So the lightning for me was being in that group and drinking from that fire hose every, you know, once a month meetings and then once a week meetings and these small meetings that we would go to and just 
just absorbing, absorbing, absorbing. I found, like I can think of an example at one point, you know, again, people were saying, are you a flipper? Or, you know, what is it that you do? I didn't know what it did. So I asked somebody who bought rundown uh, houses here in Nashville to take me with him. And he did. And I, we spent a couple of days in the car, driving through the hoods, knocking on doors, making offers. And I realized this isn't for me. <laughs> um, I realized that because I'm not, uh, you know, that just wasn't going to be the best suit for me. I had a job. I had a, a six figure job. I had an executive job. So I needed to be focused on that. I needed to have a lot of effort put into that. So whatever I did had to be something that could be in my sweet spot. So my properties tended to be newer, if not brand new. And, and the focus was short-term rental. And then ultimately, I actually transitioned to the multifamily last year after I liquidated everything else. How did that transition work? Because I know with like a 1031 exchange selling multiple homes can get a little tricky when you're trying to trade several properties into maybe one or two larger ones. Right. So I did not 1031 on any of those properties, but I did, um, I had met my husband and he had a property down in Florida that he liquidated and 1031 into an apartment complex. That was our very first experience with it. It, it is tricky. It's uh, stressful. It can be very, very stressful. Um, and that turned out to be a really good investment. That was our first uh, multifamily investment. We had no idea what we were doing. We just took it over and got a management company in there and hoped for the best. Um, but again, because I kept swimming in that pool, I learned about cost segregation and bonus depreciation. And because of that, they, get, they gave us incredible tax benefits. And then we uh, liquidated that and rolled it into syndication investments. My personal investment into multifamily the first time was a joint venture, just with like 10 people. And I'm a believer, like I'm not a big risk taker. So if you have $300,000 and you're not a big risk taker, I do not advise that you take all that 300,000 and invest it. So. I took an amount, I, I just call it an amount that doesn't make you want to scream and invested it, right? So an amount that like, I, it was $50,000. I always share my numbers, but um, it's a lot of money. I don't want to lose that money. Don't get me wrong. But if I do, it, I will not be homeless, you know? Yeah. So um, I put that $50,000 in. But the other thing is I put that $50,000, I didn't have it in cash. I pulled it from a self-directed IRA. So I took that old 401k, I moved it into a product that allowed me to invest. So when they said 50 grand, it's not like I wrote a check. It came from an account that I can't touch anyway. Smart. So that was another tool that I used and that allowed me to sort of put my toe in the water and understand a little bit about it. Um, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot to learn. And a lot of it is about gut and finding people and working with them and understanding them and feeling like you can trust them and, and understanding the process. And it's not easy. I mean, not for me anyway. That's so smart. I'm, I tell people that all the time too, that want to maybe invest in apartments, but you know, it is a lot of work, like finding the properties, networking with brokers, understanding the underwriting. And then, like you said, for a lot of people, it feels like a really big risk to take. So it's much easier to maybe dip your toe in by putting an amount of money that's, you know, that you feel like is okay. If, if you lost it, obviously none of us want to lose money, but 
you know, building relationships with a syndicator and then also kind of starting to understand and joining, you know, the webinars that they're, they're pitching to the investors and all of that kind of helps you run through the numbers and understand and learn the lingo and all of that. And it's a good way to decide if that's your path. You just don't want to deal with real estate because there's a lot of things involved or, and you can still make money and you can do it out of your retirement. <laughs> that's, I think that's so smart. Um, so, so smart. How did you get comfortable with you know, having other people's money or, and using other people's money to invest in properties? Well, I didn't, I didn't. So I don't, so when I say indication, I'm an investor in, okay. in indication. So I am not a syndicator not myself. No, but okay. I actually have brought a lot of people to the table, but I mean, I, I don't get paid for that, but I have the same advice to them, which is remember that and it, it, it's very intimidating. So remember that when you're there and you're exploring and you're learning, the person presenting is who's working for you. Right. So it's okay for you to be there and to ask questions, to ask every question. It's okay for you to attend 15 meetings and not invest a dime. It is your money and your comfort level. And uh, people struggle with that. I struggle with that too. I've just, it's a muscle, the ability to ask and to ask to a level that you're uncomfortable. Sometimes I ask questions and I'm like, I can't believe I'm going to, I can't believe I'm going to ask this question, but I'm going <laughs> to anyway. say it anyway and get even more unpopular, but um, it's a muscle and the, the ability to be like, yep, I'm here. I have 45,000 questions and I may be your lowest investor or never an investor. And it's the only, in my opinion, it's the only way to learn. And it's so smart. Yeah, you need to know what you're investing your money in. So it's totally reasonable to ask the questions. And if there's a syndicator out there who, who doesn't like that, then they're probably not a good fit anyway. Correct. Exactly. Oh, so are you out of the Airbnb game, VRBO game? Well, interestingly, I actually have a contract in my email right now that I'm signing. So what I decided was to go back into it. So there's a couple things that I've learned even the last couple of years. Yes, um, investing is smart. Uh, making money is smart off of real estate. Having equity is smart. But having cash flow is very important as well. So I left my corporate job in 2018 okay. um, and had the cash flow of the houses. But as I said, as it, as it rolled down, that's when I made the decision to sell. Then I had a chunk of change, right? So I got a big chunk of change and I have assets. Well, guess what? Banks don't care. They don't care if there's no income. They don't care how much you got in the bank if you're not creating an income of some kind. So I decided I needed a cash flowing um, uh, asset. And I decided that I wanted to do short-term rental, but that I was going to focus on markets that were friendly and that had a long, long history. So everybody's been renting a house at the beach for 35 years. Everybody's rented a house at the cabin for 35 years. Um, Airbnb just changed how we do it. That's all it is. Sure. So, um, so I'm going back into it in a market that is friendly, that literally has like, do what you want. It's your property, do what you want. And that is the norm. And there's no pushback from the community. It's, it's sort of culturally very accepted. That's exciting though. I know it's, it's hard. Um, it's hard because I know people that do, that's all they do is Airbnb, but they've, they focus on markets where it's like, 
laws are set, but they look at like apartment returns and this are like, boy, it's, you know, it's a lot, you're making a lot of money. I get it. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to just walk away from that. Where, um, how, do, so how do you go about finding the markets? Is that like you're looking around? Is that like flying their boots on the ground? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, I'm definitely a boots on the ground kind of person. So I just went last week and spent a week down in the Emerald Coast in Florida. Um, it's not hard to do. You can certainly just Google what are the most, you know, short-term rental friendly markets in the air in, in the country. Um, one of which is um, Savannah, Georgia. Very, very friendly, very, very affordable. Um, and then I add to it because you can just make an investment based on, oh, good returns. I'm going to invest there. And that's great. But I add to it. What's my involvement going to be? Am I going to have to be there? If I'm going to have to be there, how often will I have to be there? When I am there, will I enjoy being there? So uh, there were some areas that I looked at that I was like, this is a great investment, but I will hate being here. anytime." <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, my, my idea is to manage it, manage it remotely, um, but to be as hands off as, as possible. But when I go, I at least want to be in an area that I enjoy. And what's, um, we actually have uh, vacation rentals. What's, so I think a lot of people, um, we talk to, cause we get a lot of, we do financing too. So we get a lot of people going, I want to buy real estate. I want to do the, you know, the Airbnb, um, they go, what's the most important thing. So I'll ask you, you know, running an Airbnb, whether it's in your backyard or it's far away, what's going to be the most important things that are on your top of your list that, you know, you need to make sure those are solid. Do you mean in terms of the building itself or the anything? Well, I would say. So like location. I would say for you is from management to like buying, like, what do you look like? What is that? I know, I know one of is obviously like somebody always told us, if you can't take your kids there to vacation when you buy property, then don't go there. Then that's, you know, like if you have to go visit and everybody's like, this place sucks. Why do we have to come here all the time? Don't buy there, you know? Well, I see the argument in that, except for Nashville, Tennessee. I would say you two would have a great time here. Probably don't bring your kids. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great place to raise kids. There's tons to do. But if you come here, the, the vacationers here are here to party, like legendary levels of party. And, um, but there's, there's a great place to raise your kids, too. There's lots to do here. But if you're not a local, you wouldn't know that. So um, I don't disagree with that, but that's, that's kind of double fold, right? So you're making an investment that you're going to go to as well and enjoy. Yeah, this one in yeah. Florida qualifies for that. Yeah, for yeah. me, I look at um, the overall market, right? Who's friendly? What areas can I go in? Is it affordable? Then I get in, what am I looking for exactly? Um, what kind of product can I buy it with? Meaning uh, there's, a, there's a new loan. You, you may have heard of it or not. I was news to me, but it's a vacation home loan that is specific for vacation home purchases that allows you to only put down 10%, um, but it can only be used on homes and townhomes. Uh, and, and, then, and then for me, it's the actual building, right? So when I walk in, sometimes people are like, oh, it's amazing, it has this huge kitchen with all of the storage. And I'm like, you don't need that. You need a kitchen. You don't need a lot of storage. It's got massive walk-in closets. I'm like, bunk room bunk room, yeah. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know, you vacation with a suitcase and, and, you know, enough, 
to eat in the kitchen for a little bit. And the whole, the ex, what people want is the experience. So if that property can create an experience, I think you will excel because that's how you're going to sell, I think, above and beyond. And that's been interesting about this conversation about this piece of property that we're buying. We have two pieces of property, literally the exact same floor plan, and they're a quarter of a mile apart, and one overlooks the community pool and one does not. And this buyer with the community pool has been really, seller has been really, really difficult. And so my husband doesn't want to buy it. And I want to buy that one. Because for me, sitting on that porch, being able to see your kids playing in the pool, not having to schlep down in the car with all your stuff and, oh, I forgot the diaper bag and schlep on back is a game changer. That makes yeah. your, your whole, it's, it's as good as having a pool. It's as close as you're going to get to having your own pool. Hence why you go to a hotel and the, oh, you want the view with the pool? It's like a hundred bucks more a night. You're like, why? Because same thing. It's the, it's the view, the whole thing. Yeah. It's the view and that like, once you have kids and you realize your entire life is just, I mean, honestly, when they're little, you're just, you're like in a 10 foot circle, just kind of doing this all day long. Right. But none of us know that till we have kids. Oh, we're right in the thick of that. Yeah, so I get it. <laughs> yeah, a three and a half and a one and a half year old. So yeah, we get, we feel you. Yeah. You're, you're swimming in it deep. And I mean, that's the other thing too. People don't go down to the Emerald Coast to do their, their wild bachelorette party. They'll okay. go for a girl's weekend, um, but they're not going to go clubbing and all of that. It's a very different vibe. Or if you go to the mountains, you know, people will buy beautiful houses in the mountains that don't look like cabins. That's a mistake. I'm going to the mountains and I'm coming from Dallas. I'm buying my work boots at Walmart and I'm getting a flannel shirt and I want bear heads on the wall. And I want the feeling of a cabin. I'm not going to stay in your beautiful home. That looks like every other home in Dallas, you know? So, um, I think about that too. I think about the actual structure. Um, but there are lots of people making money off of little crappy apartments and beach towns. And, but I just, I don't really want to own that. Uh, you know, that's probably not what I would want to own. Like you said, there's just so many opportunities out there if you look. So even for us in multifamily, you know, some people do what we call workforce, workforce housing, you know, and, and maybe you don't want to do that because it's not a great neighborhood and you don't want to be in those places at night. You don't really want to drive by. It's not fun. Uh, or you can go luxury. So that's, that's the really amazing or beautiful thing about real estate is that you can kind of choose. There's so many different opportunities in various sectors of real estate that can kind of fit whatever you're, whatever you want to enjoy, you know, whatever you enjoy doing. So, yeah, we had a, one of our mentors here always told us, I think he just told you again, he goes, you know, buy where you don't want to live and rent where you want to live. So he's more like rent the house on the beach. Don't buy it. Let the landlord deal with it and just go buy apartments where you won't live, but that's where you make the money. You know, then eventually you can buy what you want, but that's always been his thing. It's he just told And that's you. another strategy though. Yeah. Other yeah. people have strategies where they only want to buy where they'd enjoy being and that works well for them too. So it's just, that's yeah. the cool thing about real estate is there's something for everybody if you just look and see where the opportunities are. So when you're buying in Florida, um, this is a good question for you. And I think this is, I think a lot of people, you know, you're, you had your stuff near you. So you had your clean or your handyman, whatever it's right there. So now you're like, okay, I know there's great software that does a lot of things now. I mean, I know people that have a side hustle. They manage 10 vacation rentals. Like, Oh, it's five minutes a day. I was like, what? 
and it's just they have the handyman, the cleaner, and it's pretty simple. But for you, how do you go to another market and go, I got to find the handyman, I got to find my resources, my cleaner? Like, how do you do that? Well, um, I haven't done it yet, uh, but how I plan to do it is the same way I've done anything else, and that's just get in the right pool again. So my intention is to find a group of short-term rental owners, probably in Florida, and uh, that could be his Facebook group, that could be anything, and start putting the word out. I mean, in Florida, in the Smoky Mountains, in a lot of these places, this is an entire industry. It's not new. It's not strange. It's nothing. I, I know I need a linen service. I know I need a cleaning service. I know I need a handyman. I know I probably need another person to just kind of keep eyes on the property um, when I'm not there. And uh, that will start like literally with a Google search or um, a recommendation through agents, people who are there, who are there all the time, who have short-term rentals. That's what I would do. I'm just a big believer in the referral. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I mean, like anything, you don't get a job without a referral. You don't, you, I wouldn't hire somebody without their referral from somebody who had actually worked with them and experienced it. So that's my plan. Um, I won't have the luxury of if the cleaner doesn't show up that I can shuffle on over there and make it happen. So when you're out of town, you've got to have at least two cleaners and two handymen and two, and you know, you have to factor that into the cost of ownership. And is that really going to be worth it? I mean, these folks aren't on salary, um, but is that, is that really going to be worth it? So I tend to find people and keep them. So here in Nashville, I've had the same handyman for seven, eight years. I've had the same cleaner. She started with me cleaning my house once a month. Then when I started with Airbnb, she started cleaning my house three times a week. And then my three houses, three times a week each. And then I introduced her to our manager. And now she handles like 20 extremely high-end properties and probably takes in 200,000 a year as a, as a housekeeper, as a house cleaner. But she's invaluable. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, I tell people for us, the cleaner is probably the most important person because you can, like ours, we have four. So it's, you know, they're able to do all four, but you can teach them to go through and look for stuff, call out stuff, take pictures, all that. So they can, they're really, that a good cleaner can become, you know, right-hand person if you have enough properties. Especially if you like the area, you can build a portfolio there and then you have, okay, wow, she has four or five. Like, I really got to take care of her because they're making money, you know? Right. I mean, I'm a, I, when I started, and I'll probably do the same thing here in Florida because I'll only have the one property. Uh, my intention is to find somebody who is a cleaner, stager, and business partner. So what I want this individual to do or the team, whatever it is, is you're going to the house to clean, but you're also part of the staging. You understand how it was staged, it needs to be put back. And, you need, and, and I am relying on you to go, hey, that vase got broken, the lights broke, the lamp, the chair, the this, the that, um, and the outside. So I learned that by going to other markets too. I was shocked when I went up to the Smokies Mountains and they were like, our cleaners, it's, it's required by law, drain the hot tub ever, after every single stay, clean it, refill it after every single wow. stay. Wow. And yes, and they go out and clean all of the decks and they have these little things. I don't know, I'm not very outdoorsy, but um, it captures these bugs that drill through the wood and the cleaners take all of those down and clean them out. And it's just part of it. It's part of what they're doing to maintain this really pristine, 
high-end experience in the mountains, it's very different. Um, bear cages, I learned, I was like, wait a minute, what does that mean? Is there a bear in a cage? And so a bear cage is around your garbage, uh, but I didn't know that. So, you know, they have to deal with all kinds of different things. So I, if I were getting started in it, I would approach it as find somebody who is interested in kind of partnering with you and growing their own opportunity um, because it's an incredible opportunity for somebody who takes that work very seriously. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, what do you, are you, are you getting now that you're kind of, I mean, it's kind of a cool, so from when you were down and out the second time to today, how many years has that been? Well, the second time uh, was 2010 uh, from flat broke, no place to live. And it was three years for me to rebuild my credit to 2013. That's when I was able to purchase the house. And by really actually by 2017, so three years later, I had the, the three houses. So it's, it's been 11 years total. Um, but seven to get to a point where you're like, you're like here feeling good. And like, you're like, okay, I did something here. I've, I'm, I'm on my way. Yeah, I think, I think in 2017, when I finally did the, the math and looked around, I was like, what? <laughs> and my goal had always been, sorry, I don't know if any of this is video or if it's all audio, so I apologize if that sounds no, like okay. <laughs> um, I, I had always wanted to leave my corporate job and I kind of promised myself when I hit a certain number of income cash flow from the properties that I would and here's the crazy thing in 2018, November, I left that job and the houses had been booked solid, usually a year in advance, 2018, November. And then literally for the next three months, all of the houses sat empty and I was like sick. And then 2019, the numbers did not perform as well. And I kept watching and watching my competition, these, these buildings, rooftop, you know, spas and bars and fireplaces. And, you know, I just had these little houses that were great, but um, that was my competition. So that's when I kind of decided that I could do something else. And, you know, in a way, taking $100,000, if you look at it this way, if you take $100,000 and you invest it in a piece of property, well, what can you buy for that? Not much. And you probably, that's probably not even much of a down payment. And then you've got everything that goes along with it versus take that same $100,000 and put it into syndication. The biggest problem, syndication and joint venture that I tell people is that you got to say goodbye to your money for a little bit, you know, and it's going to take a while to get it back. Um, and, and you're separated. You're not the one necessarily pulling the strings. A joint venture, you have a little more control, but in a syndication, you don't, and you need to be comfortable with that. But I challenge people to to, to try that. Okay. Take your hundred grand, put it here, take another hundred grand, put it here or 50 or whatever the number is and see, see which one outperforms and see which one prevent, uh, provides more work for you. Um, not, and not to negate or downplay the importance of the tax benefits of being in a syndication, getting the K ones, getting the, the, uh, tax benefits that, you don't really see coming. That's a very nice benefit to that. The negative K ones, even though it was a negative. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. I mean, there's a reason. There's a reason 
that people in real estate, you know, it, it, I think it is the only, I don't think you can build wealth without real estate in your pocket. And to, to your point earlier, it, that doesn't mean you ever have to own a piece of property. Real, you can invest in real estate in a million different ways without ever even owning property. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a very big learning curve. Yeah, I have a client now. He's making seven figures W-2. So I always tell them, thank you for paying all the taxes, especially in California. We appreciate it. Um, and he's buying real estate because he's like, we literally looked, and he's a smart guy. He's like, I looked everywhere, everything. In it, and it's like this, he's learning about buying at cost, like a CPA, he looked everywhere. And he says, this is, there is nothing better I could find for. And he's tried other things than this than buying real estate to do it. And um, it's funny. And he's like, you know, I know he's older and he's like, I'm just kind of like, man, I can't believe I'm learning this now. I said, the good news is, is you are learning this now though. You know, it wasn't 10 more years because he's in this very high income. And I'm like, think about another 10 years. So I was going to ask you is now you're 10, 11 years into this. What is the biggest lesson or what is the biggest thing you've learned just going through this whole from like zero to now just like with with the money the finance all that what has been the biggest aha or lesson that you've learned i mean the biggest lesson is to never uh, have a whole list of never ever 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 ever's um and one of them is never turn your financial well-being or any well-being over to someone else period uh, your emotional, your financial, your physical, your spiritual, don't turn it over. It belongs to you. That means a financial advisor or anybody else. Remember, they're on your payroll. They work for you. Um, but that goes for relationships as well. I mean, that was my big mistake. And I see it with women. I see it with men sometimes too, but traditionally it's women um, where they're, you know, in a, in a long-term relationship and believe that they're safe uh, they don't really understand the money or what's happening. And that's really uh, not a position anybody should ever be in. Um, so you have to stand up for yourself, ask the questions, even in your own relationship, and to never turn that over to someone else. I get how easy it is to do that. And I get how, how wonderful it is when you see couples who can do that successfully, and it all works out great. But until it doesn't, until it doesn't, until 27 years later, you're coming out of a marriage and you realize that you have no control and you don't, and there's debt that you didn't know about or whatever it is. Um, and so I, I just, I think it's hard though, because we are taught our whole lives to not talk about money. Like you don't talk about politics, you don't talk about money. And so it's considered rude or uh, upsetting or whatever. Um, so it is a conversation that, that you have to be having all the time with yourself, with your spouse, with your partners, with your children, uh, with everybody. I learned that very, very, very late. Um, but, but I know it now. It's so true. Um, because I, I've talked a lot about that in previous episodes, uh, just because I know so many women myself that have no idea about their finances. And there's so many reasons why. You know, they're, they stayed at home with the kids. It's boring. I don't understand it. You know, like I never really thought about it. And now it's too late. I'm just not interested in starting. There's just so many things around it that, you know, for me, I'm actually like, I'm going to have a panic attack if I don't know what's going on with our financial situation. It's just always been that way for me. But 
um, what kind of things could you give someone in this position that's, you know, maybe in a marriage and they don't know exactly where the money's going and they want to have this conversation? Do you have any kind of tips or advice that you could give a woman in that same position? Yeah, I would say um, spend a little time trying to understand what your money culture is yourself. So I have a book on my website called You Don't Have to Be Wealthy to Build Wealth. I have another one called Pivot and Thrive. They're free. You can download them. And they kind of walk through the questions that you ask yourself. It was something really important to me. Um, It's something I asked my guests. The first question is, what was your money culture growing up? What did it teach you about money? And how did it affect you, right? So when you sit down with your spouse, who maybe you're afraid to talk to about this, maybe it's been a role that you've been playing for a long time and you've never rocked the boat. And if you sit down and you can explain, listen, I want you to know that I have a lot of fear around, around security and around money. And I haven't brought this to the forefront. And I hope that you will understand I need to take a more active role in this. And I want to know what it is now. You know, if you have a spouse who's going to be defensive about that or a partner who's going to be defensive about that, you have, you have other issues. Um, yeah. But I think, I think it starts with understanding yourself. So with my, with, you know, I'm, I'm a newlywed. I was single for many, many, many years, and we've only been married for three and a half years, but we came together, both uh, former head of household, former providers, type A, I mean, you know, <laughs> um, so we have lots of conversations, but they really have to start with, um, I'm questioning this because I feel afraid or I'm questioning this because I feel like you're trying to control me or whatever that demon is in the closet. And I would encourage that you understanding your partner's culture. My, so my first husband had a very different money culture than I did. And I didn't understand it at the time. And I now can look back and think and have empathy for him um, where we were starving. I was living in California and going to college and living off of rice, which is what people do. And that didn't bother me because I knew I was going to college and living off of rice is just what you do when you're in college. He had a money culture where if he wasn't being provided for, it made him feel um, abandoned. So even though we were flat broke, he would eat out three times a day at a restaurant and, you know, would run up $20,000 on our credit card when we couldn't buy groceries. That was from a need that wasn't fulfilled as a child of being taken care of. You, you can't fix that, but understanding it is really important. Um, you know, so I, I think that's really where it starts. It's scary. It can be really scary. The other thing is to get an ally in it, whether it's a financial advisor. I interviewed, um, uh, the guys from, they have a podcast called the money guy podcast. Uh, and they were great. And I asked them about the, you know, the, the couples that come in and the women who were like, oh, I don't know. And I just, just up to him and whatever. And they said, you know, it really, it angers us. It upsets us. It's not the right it's and it. You know, it, the onus falls on both sides. I would say one more thing about this. And that is this, and I hope your listeners will hear this statistically women outperform men in investments by 40% when they make an investment, but they're 40% less likely to do it. Right. So if you guys know, if you've been bringing in investors yourself, you know how hard it is to get them over the finish line. Uh, The women are harder, but they usually outperform their instincts are usually right. These men aren't born with some genetic gift that teaches them more about money than we are. It's just a role in our society that we've kind of been taught. That's a lie, to be frank. 
if nothing else, I think that's very good reason for a husband to want his wife to be involved or take a role financially because I think it, the role, it, you know, the responsibility is on both people. So if, you know, you're a, you're a man and your wife is not interested in your financials, then you should be, you know, trying to encourage her to be involved and take an active role and see how you can get her interested because uh, that's, if, if women are making those kinds of decisions 40% better overall, then why shouldn't we all be involved in making some of these financial decisions? Because we just have a different viewpoint. Yeah, no, I actually, um, we're, I mean, I probably don't even buy like a pair of jeans without saying, Hey, I'm just going to buy us. I'm just, it's just how we've, we started it, you know? And, um, so we're very open about it. So we're around people that aren't, I think it helps. Cause I even call out guys. I said, what do you mean? Well, my wife doesn't care. I said, yeah, but that's a problem because the problem is if you get hit by a truck or you, something happens, what you don't know, what you've done is you've overloaded her. You stressed her out. So not only does she have to stress about, I got kids and you're, whoops, you're not here is what about the money? Where is it? And, it, and so it's sad because we've had friends and we know people that have passed and I have one lady in mind and she didn't know this wasn't set up or that wasn't set up or whatever. And she, I remember her, Debbie, little neighbor was like, called me and said, don't ever do this to Crystal. I said, well, the good news is, is Crystal probably knows more about our stuff than I do. And I'm fine with that. And I'm fine with her being a part of every decision or you make the final decision. Cause I do agree that women probably they're better at a lot of things than men. It's just this culture thinks it is, you know? Um, but it's sad. I actually spoke to a guy, this is interesting. And this will go into like, I think, um, Final question we ask is I talked to this guy at 75 yesterday and he says, I'm unemployed. Nobody will hire me. And I only get $2,100 a month and my mortgage was more. And he's like, has a daughter that he sent to school, thought she's gonna be a rock star and got into drugs and living with him. And he, and we were talking and I was like, I can't really help you. And he just finished the conversation saying, you know, what I realized is that unfortunately in America, you have to be rich to make it till you're older because if something happens and you can't work or this social security is not going to cover it. I'm just, he's like, I didn't get rich. I screwed up. I worried about everybody else, but I never bought real estate or invested or anything like that. And now I'm stuck. I'm 75. Who's going to hire me? And he's like, just make sure you, if you do one thing, get rich. So when you're older, you're not like me. And I think that goes for all of us. Like there are so many people that you were in the, you know, you were at twice and you're like never again, but not even that, like how you approach your relationship with money, your relationship with somebody else you're bringing into your money. You're like, oh, you're coming into my world and you might have something to say with my money. It's like, no, no, no. Like. So I was sad to hear that, but that is the reality. And that's, so um, two questions for you. Number one is where's the best place people can find you, learn more about you? Um, number one. Oh, uh, my website's probably the easiest. So uh, <clears throat> www.micro-empires.com. And I'm on all the socials. You can always reach me there. I have a Facebook community. Certainly would love for folks to join that too. Are links to your books uh, on that site as well? Yes. 
podcasts. Okay. You can download the site. There's also some free tools like a net worth calculator and some other things that I've put together are there as well. Plus all of the episodes, uh, you know, you can watch those on YouTube as well if you prefer, but yeah, everything's there. Whole bunch of content. <laughs> and then, so the second question, which is our, always our final question is what is your definition of generational wealth? Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. Um, it's so interesting. You're talking about that. <laughs> That's why I tied in the guy, but I was like, um, my definition of generational wealth, I think would be to break the bondage of the bad beliefs that have held you down throughout the generations. So that's a terrible answer. But what I mean by that is, um, you know, we know that uh, financial struggles, uh, financial trauma doesn't just affect one person. It affects you, it affects your children. It can affect, I mean, you could be affected by the stories that you were told by your grandpa about real estate or, or anything else, your beliefs about money. And so I think the true definition of generational wealth is just by opening, cracking that egg open and going, it can be whatever you want it to be. And you can take control of that. You know, in the United States, unfortunately, I could talk forever about healthcare and seniors and et cetera, because I worked in that environment for many, many years. Oh, wow. um, it is not necessarily like, hey, we're all in this together or it's about bootstrapping. You are on your own. And um so I think that's the definition of generational wealth is to not just provide uh, for my kids and my grandkids and things like that, but to really teach them that the options are completely up to you and to go where you're treated best. And I'm constantly look, looking at that. And if I'm not treated best in Nashville, I'll go to Florida. If I'm not treated well there, I'll go to Europe. You know, just go where you're treated best. Go where the laws benefit you and the environments benefit you so long answer to your question, but that's it. No, I like it. I like it. That was great. Yeah. Um, I appreciate you coming on. Um, congratulations on all your success, all the things you're doing. Um, we have a podcast, you have a podcast, so I, it's always great because you come on and you get to talk about things. And I know an hour, we probably could have talked for three more hours about a lot of things, but it goes by like that. But, um, I don't, it's an inspiring story. And I think that, uh, women should be more involved. And I think just listening to your story, there is a lot of women out there, but I think, you know, I, when I hear stories like this, I'm like, you can do it. You might be down and out. Shit might not be going your way, but it's, you get in the mindset, like you said, you didn't have an option. So you just do it. And you're, you're a definition of that, you know? So congrats on all your success. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks you guys. Thanks so much for having me on. This is really fun. Yeah, that was fun. Thanks so much, Jennifer. Okay, take care. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.